Welcome to Oncology Nursing Update, Dermatologic Cancer Edition. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Ms. Krista Rubin, and to begin, we chatted about malignant melanoma. And to start the discussion, Ms. Rubin presented a patient from her practice. So this was a 33-year-old male, a pilot for a commercial airline as well as being in the Air Force. And that's applicable because it does factor into his decision-making for treatment options. So this was a gentleman that was seen accompanied by his pregnant wife after having a diagnosis of a stage 3B melanoma. He initially presented to a local dermatologist whom he did not have a relationship with. It was a first-time appointment after he noted a pimple-like lesion on his leg and it persisted for a number of months and was enlarging, and he just thought that that was a little unusual. So he did pursue an appointment with a dermatologist whom he saw within a month or so of initiating the appointment. The dermatologist evaluated this and felt it was not concerning, so a biopsy was not recommended nor obtained. This patient went home and for about a month just did not feel comfortable with that decision for not having a biopsy. So he actually initiated another appointment with a different dermatologist that was local. This dermatologist saw him, and given that this patient was a redhead and pretty fair in terms of his phenotype, she felt a biopsy was warranted because often redheads will not make moles or melanomas that are pigmented. So indeed, he had a biopsy of this lesion, which confirmed melanoma. He was referred to a medical oncologist who recommended recommended a wide excision with sentinel lymph node evaluation, and the patient opted to transfer his care to a tertiary medical center here in Boston. He was seen by surgeon. Wide excision was recommended as well as a sentinel lymph node biopsy, which was subsequently performed, and indeed this patient did have a metastatic lymph node with microscopic involvement of one lymph node. Staging CAT scans did not show any evidence of distant metastasis. So he is diagnosed with a T1B N1A melanoma, which translates to a stage 3B, which is a pretty high-risk lesion, pretty high-risk melanoma. So specifically, roughly, about what would be the risk that he would have recurrent disease and die from it? His 10-year survival, which we are using more and more in the era of melanoma because melanoma, unlike many other cancers, has late recurrences. So where most cancers look at 5-year survival, we look at both 5- and 10-year survival to make decision risks. So based on his stage of 3B, his risk was at least about 45 to 50% for 10-year survival, which in a 33-year-old male is pretty significant. Absolutely. And of course, the possibility of using adjuvant therapy as it's commonly used in breast, colon, and lung cancer would be out on the table to try to improve that risk. What are the options that you consider in a situation like that? And what did you discuss with him? So these are always very difficult discussions. And I think where nurse practitioners and nurses come in is helping the patient look at the big picture and figure out what's going to be the best option for them. So the medical oncologist that I work with laid out his treatment options, which include, number one, as always, observation. Observation would mean no active drug trials or drug use for his disease. And of course, given this patient's age and the circumstances, that was not an option for him. So it's important that that is discussed with patients. So observation was not an option for him. In the United States in 2013, the only FDA-approved drugs for high-risk melanoma is interferon. So 
interferon was discussed with him. Two options are now available. One is the standard high-dose interferon, which is a year-long course that is pretty well known, but unfortunately not known to have a great efficacy or toxicity profile. As of 2011, there's been a pegylated form of interferon for patients that have stage 3A, B, or C melanoma. So that was an option for him. You talked about two different kinds of interferons. What kinds of numbers do you give to patients in terms of how that affects the risk and what to expect in terms of side effects and quality of life? Mm -hmm. Which is really important, the latter that you mentioned, quality of life. But to present the patient with information, a really kind of objective point of view is essential in describing the treatment options. Now, interferon, like I mentioned earlier, is the only FDA-approved therapy for high-risk melanoma. In this particular case, as in any patient receiving adjuvant therapy, the goal is to reduce the risk of relapse. And it's important to make that clear because this will not totally get rid of his risk, but it will help to minimize it. So it's a difficult discussion, but typically what we tell people for interferon is the three large clinical trials that were performed in the United States through the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group clearly showed that there is definite an improvement in relapse-free survival. Only two out of the three trials demonstrated an improvement in overall survival. Reader's Digest version information that we provide to the patient is that most people will not benefit from interferon. However, for the population that does benefit, perhaps one in 10 patients who get interferon will be cured. Now, if you're that one person, and in this case, a 33-year-old male with a wife who's expecting a baby, why not? And in this case, this patient wanted to be aggressive, if you will. Interferon was definitely something he was interested in. And so he was leading towards therapy with interferon, the standard versus the pegylated form. Now, as he and you and the team contemplated these two types of interferon, how did you compare them to him in terms of what to expect, how long he would be treated, the schedule, and side effects? So what I typically like to do is start describing what interferon is. It's important that patients know this is not chemotherapy or antineoplastic therapy, as patients often stereotype cancer therapies to be. I explain it's a protein we all have in our body. I explain how it works. I explain that the toxicity profile related to this drug has to do with its mechanism of action. So I first describe interferon in generality, and then I go into explaining the difference between the high dose versus the pegylated form. Essentially, what I say as the nurse and as the nurse practitioner to these patients is the pegylated form is thought to be kinder and gentler. Its goal is really to be able to give the drug for an extended, a more extended period of time. The FDA approval was up to five years, but its goal is to minimize those peaks and troughs of the blood level and therefore offer a more gentle toxicity profile, which I have seen it to do. However, a five-year commitment is pretty significant, and so that's a lot to ask patients to consider. In the clinical trials, the majority, approximately 70% of the patients, did not make full dose for the five-year planned course. So what we tell patients is we will go as long as you're tolerating the drug, and the drug is tolerating you, if you will. And so we don't really say that we're committed to the five years. And that's important to really explain that we kind of think of interferon as a lock and key phenomenon where 
if interferon is the key that unlocks the immune system, we're not so concerned about dose numbers and duration of therapy. If it's going to work, it'll work whether it's perhaps 48 weeks or 52 weeks in the high dose, or maybe you don't need the full 296 weeks in the five-year plan. You know, we're not really sure if more is necessarily better. And in terms of quality of life, as you mentioned, there is the thought that perhaps the pegylated version will be better tolerated. What have you actually observed yourself in that regard? So I like to think of this in two different ways. When I explain to patients, I explain that the high-dose form is given for the first month as an intravenous intense therapy where the goal is to induce the immune effect. So therefore, the first month is called induction. And then the goal is to maintain that induced immune system. So the next part of, as you can imagine, is called maintenance. It's easy to easy for me to say, but easy to get through those 30 days or 20 doses of therapy. Patients are coming into the outpatient setting every day. They have nurses there that are their cheerleaders. They're being evaluated. They're being looked at every single day. In some aspects, that's a little bit easier because what you need to do is just put your head down and get through those 20 doses with a lot of support from the medical team. When it comes time to do the injections under the skin for the rest of the 11-month course, the more acute side effects have abated. And so we don't see the patient really needing their medical team as much. And what are the key issues in both of these drugs in terms of side effects and how are they managed? So the most common side effect, the number one reported side effect in either drug is fatigue. I will argue 100% of patients get fatigued. It's just a matter of what degree. Some patients will be an outlier in one respect that they say, I go to bed a half an hour earlier, I do fine, I'm able to manage it. And then the other side of the spectrum is that patients will call and say, I physically can't get out of bed. I can't get myself into the kitchen to get myself a drink. Fatigue can be profound, and it's not just a physical fatigue, it can be a cognitive fatigue. It can be just, it hurts to think. I'm too tired to think. I'm too tired to go grocery shopping. So I would argue that that's the number one reported toxicity. It is reported in the literature in both the pegylated and the standard form to be in the upwards of 90 to 95% of patients will report that. The other common side effects are flu-like symptoms such as fevers and chills and myalgias and arthralgias. And the toxicity profile comes from the mechanism of action. When we give one type of interferon, we're setting off a cytokine cascade, if you will. And each one of the members or the players of the immune system has its subsequent effect that patients will feel. So the fevers are from one cytokine, the chills are from another, nausea can be common, vomiting is not common. And if I see patients are having a fair amount of emesis, I'm more suspicious about an occult brain metastasis or a GM metastasis. So vomiting is not something that's commonly seen. Cognitive side effects are also another big issue that can be very challenging to manage because we don't have a pill to make them go away. Short-term memory loss, irritability, depression can be seen in approximately 40% of patients. That is a true chemical-induced depression as opposed to a situational depression. And we have to proceed with caution in patients that have a history of depression. Patients with any history of attempted suicide or suicidal ideation, that would be a contraindication for interferon. But patients that have a mild or maybe have a depressive order from years ago that is very, very well managed and not interfering with life should absolutely be considered for this therapy. So flu-like symptoms, fatigue, muscle aches and pains, the depression, those are the most common. 
And I'm curious what this man decided upon and what happened. So this patient decided to go with the standard high-dose interferon. Really, because he was a pilot, the FAA will not allow patients that are on any kind of cancer therapy such as this to fly. So he did not want to pursue therapy for five years because that would ground him for five years. So he opted for the high-dose interferon, which would take him out of flight for a year or less. So where is he right now? So he is now week seven into therapy. He's completed his first four weeks of induction and actually did terrific. He missed one dose only for the 4th of July holiday. So his labs were terrific. He was able to tolerate therapy through it. He had a fair amount of fatigue. He's had some cognitive dysfunction, such as irritability. But he's also more stressed than most. The arrival of the baby is supposed to happen in the middle of August. So we're trying to make plans accordingly for him to be present and available in the delivery room when his wife goes into labor. I saw him yesterday in clinic, and he has self-administered five doses of interferon, and he seems to have a very good handle on his side effects. He pre-medicates with acetaminophen. Occasionally, he'll need some ibuprofen for myalgias, but he's no longer having fevers. His fatigue is manageable, but it is limiting. So let's talk about management of metastatic melanoma. And to begin, we know that about half of these patients have BRAF mutations in their tumor cells and can be managed with so-called BRAF inhibitors. Can you talk about these agents? So BRAF inhibitors are oral agents that target that very specific BRAF mutation. And they actually act as a blocker, an inhibitor, so that that signal cannot pass through and the message does not go to the cell to grow. In 2013, there are now two BRAF inhibitors that are FDA approved. One was approved just on May 29th of this year. But the first kind of first in class BRAF inhibitor is a drug known as Vemurafenib or formerly PLX4032. And this was a drug that really was absolutely game-changing in the era of treating metastatic melanoma. The phase one clinical trials using this agent demonstrated a response rate of almost 80%, which is absolutely unheard of in cancer clinical trials that are phase one. Not only did most of these patients respond, but many of them had a fairly durable response. So that led the researchers to realize that they are definitely on to something. So this this drug, PLX4032, eventually went through its subsequent clinical trials and became FDA-approved last year. Again, the drug is known as Vemurafenib, and it is a V600E inhibitor or a V600K inhibitor, which is, again, mutation site. And these drugs are oral agents taken twice a day, essentially indefinitely, to inhibit that mutation. Now, recently, as of May, as I alluded to, there was another FDA-approved drug in the U.S. known as dibrafenib. And this is another in-class BRAF inhibitor that its mechanism of action is the same as vemurafenib. It may have a slightly different toxicity profile. It may be a little bit kinder, if you will, less toxicity. But in general, these are oral agents that are extraordinarily well-tolerated. The side effect profile, which we can talk about in a moment, is similar, but in general, they are very well tolerated. And elderly folks often tolerate these quite well. And how long do the responses last with these patients? 
So that's what's unfortunate. Most people, at least with the vemurafenib clinical trials, unfortunately develop a resistance and the drug stops working. On average, it's thought to be about five to seven months response. So unlike immune-based therapy, which is the other side of the spectrum for the treatment of advanced disease, most people on a BRAF inhibitor will respond but most people will have a duration of response that lasts only about five to seven months. Now, you mentioned the toxicities and side effects. Can you talk about those? So the toxicity profile related to these agents has actually been very interesting because when we were first giving these agents in the clinical trials, and I did participate in many of the clinical trials, some of the side effects that were happening were not clearly understood. For example, about 20% of patients on the BRAF inhibitor that we're most familiar with, vemurafenib, will actually develop another skin cancer. They will develop squamous cell carcinoma, particularly the keratoacanthoma type or KA type, which is thought to be a more benign squamous cell, but it certainly happens. And these patients will, if they're going to have a squamous cell develop, it typically will happen in the first weeks to months of going on the agent. But it can be really pretty amazing. You can see patients have 5, 6, 7, 10, 15, 20 spots that just show up. And the keratoacanthoma classically looks like about a one centimeter Ant hill, if you will. It has a central crater, a keratin plug, and these can be pretty significant. Patients don't like the way they look. In addition, patients can also develop these veruca like keratoses, which can be very unsightly to many. And we have to explain to them, well, here we have you on a drug to get rid of one of your skin cancers, and here you are developing other skin cancers. And this happens through off target effects. So not only are we targeting BRAF, but this wasn't clear when the original trials were being performed, but we see these off-target effects that lead to some of the side effects. Other common side effects are myalgias, arthralgias. Patients on vemurafenib can be extraordinarily sun-sensitive. Patients must be counseled to wear sunscreen, and it's not just direct sunlight, it can be indirect. I had one patient who actually had a second degree sunburn from the reflection of an aluminum door on her porch. Wow. So it can be pretty significant. And sunburn, we've had a couple of patients admitted to the hospital with second degree burns. So that can be also very, very alarming to patients. And they can also develop a hand-foot syndrome where they get significant calluses on their hands and feet and peeling. And a rash, a rash can happen. An acne form, papular rash can also be commonly seen on these agents. Yeah, I've heard a lot of scary case stories about the sunburn and the photosensitivity. Mm -hmm. I'm not really clear. Does sunblock actually work? What works better is actually sun protective clothing, where it's actually right. blocking it. And the reason for that is most people don't apply sunscreen properly or will miss a spot on their body where sunscreen wasn't applied, and that's where they may get the burn. So we really recommend sun protective clothing or long sleeve clothing or counsel them to totally stay out of the sun, say, during the daylight hours of 10 to 4, where the sun is strongest. So you mentioned as the other major alternative, and of course, the BRAF inhibitor is only an alternative in, I guess, about half of patients, roughly, that have BRAF inhibitors. For everybody else, there's the option of immune therapy as well in the BRAF-positive situation. What are the immune strategies that are considered 
So this has been just incredibly exciting and really a complete paradigm shift in how we manage metastatic melanoma. For years, it's been known that metastatic melanoma is really thought of as an immune-based cancer. And traditionally, radiotherapy and chemotherapy has not been effective in this disease. But there's also been reports historically of spontaneous remissions of metastatic disease. So that really gave researchers the insight to think that the immune system is very, very involved with this disease. And interleukin-2, or high-dose interleukin, has been a drug that was FDA-approved in the 80s for both renal cell carcinoma, another immune-like cancer, and metastatic melanoma, because we know that T cells, which are part of the immune system, are really involved with melanoma. Now, again, high-dose IL-2 was approved in the late 90s, and for a select population of patients that has been curative, if you will, we don't like to use that word in melanoma, but it's certainly been able to induce extended or durable remissions for many of these patients. So really, for the last decade or so, researchers have been looking into ways in which to manipulate the immune system to deal with metastatic melanoma. Well, a couple of years ago, a drug known as ipilimumab, ipilimumab is a CTLA-4 antibody, and what this agent does is it blocks or takes the breaks off of the immune system so that a T cell is on all the time, and its goal is to recognize those cancer cells, those melanoma cells particularly, and get rid of them, if you will. And that has been, again, game-changing in melanoma. It's the first clinical trial, phase three clinical trial ever to demonstrate an overall survival rate in a select population of patients. So CTLA-4 is another type of immune-based therapy that is now on the menu with high-dose interleukin-2 both with response rates that are certainly not comparative to the BRAF inhibitors. I mentioned before that the BRAF inhibitors, most people will respond, but few people will have a durable remission. This is the opposite. Immunotherapy, we see most patients won't respond, but for the ones that do, it will be a durable remission. So what is interesting is that even though a patient, a newly diagnosed metastatic melanoma patient walks through the door and we know has a BRAF mutation, that doesn't mean that a BRAF agent will be the first line therapy. And that can be very confusing for many patients to understand. We know that there's a better chance of getting patients into a durable remission with the immunotherapies, unlike the BRAF inhibitors. So people will say to me, well, how do you decide what the physician is going to recommend? Well, we like to think of it this way. If I have a patient that's walking in the door who's extraordinarily symptomatic, having pain, lost 30 pounds, just feeling very unwell... Because it's known that immunotherapies take a while to work, for ipilimumab, it's on average of about four months, a particular patient walking through the door that's that symptomatic may not have four months to live. So we need something that's going to work quickly. The BRAF inhibitors work quickly, within days. The immune-based therapies take months to work. So that's how we make the decision. If somebody's walking in the door that is symptomatic, needs something quick, and they have a BRAF mutation, then they will likely go on a BRAF agent, possibly in a clinical trial with combination immunotherapy. If I have a newly diagnosed metastatic melanoma patient that walks through the door that's feeling great, maybe have lung mats, totally, totally asymptomatic, we know that they have time, they have four or five months, then we would choose or recommend an immune-based therapy for them. So let's finish out talking about basal cell cancer, and why don't we focus on your 84-year-old man? 
So this was really pretty unsettling. This was a gentleman who was somebody who lived in a nursing home with mild dementia, unable to care for himself. He had many other comorbidities, including cardiovascular disease. And this was a gentleman who had had a small basal cell on the left temple area, but went neglected initially. And he eventually did obtain care, and he had a resection of this basal cell and unfortunately recurred. He went on to have two more resections now having pretty much most of the entire temple area removed. And he did have radiotherapy as well to try to clean up positive margins. They were not able to resect this to negative margins. And it essentially kept coming back and kept coming back. And surgery, plastic surgery and dermatologic surgery did not feel that they would be able to ever obtain negative margins. And within a two-month period of time, this thing just was growing and growing and starting to fungate and starting to bleed. So he was referred to medical oncology for consideration of an oral agent known as vismotigib. And he was seen by one of the oncologists and thought to be a good candidate for this oral agent. So can you talk a little bit about basal cell cancer and also about this drug Vismodegib? Mm -hmm. So this typically basal cell carcinoma, which is the most common skin cancer in the U.S., more than a million people per year will have a diagnosis of a basal cell, but it's typically extraordinarily curable. These are often small little bumps or spots on the body that when caught early or when detected early are very, very curable. But in some instances, is extraordinarily rare instances, you can have either metastatic basal cell or you can have advanced basal cell where it's really unable to be resected. In part, it was likely that this was somewhat neglected initially and then just kind of crept along the lower part or the upper part of the dermis. And so they weren't able to get clear margins with this. But what has been interesting over the last few years when they're looking at some of these cancers is that basal cell is known to have a particularly interesting mutation along the hedgehog pathway. And this has been a new pathway also discovered in the last decade or so where mutations are seen along this pathway. So there have been interesting clinical trials looking at blockers of this hedgehog pathway. And it originally came from, I think it was flies that these studies were done on, and they had kind of these dents in their bodies that looked like hedgehogs. And so the pathway was named after that. And there are two interesting pathways in the basal cell spectrum where they're looking at smoothen, which is one area that's also involved in basal cell, as well as this hedgehog pathway. Vismodegib is a drug that blocks that hedgehog pathway. It's an inhibitor of the pathway. So it's a hedgehog inhibitor, as it's known, and similar to the inhibitors in melanoma, the BRAF inhibitor, this is an oral agent that's taken twice a day, generally very well tolerated by many. Limiting side effects can be leg cramps, interestingly. They're not really sure of the mechanism of action. Patients can have some muscle aches and pains as well, but typically a generally tolerated drug. This gentleman, given the fact that we weren't able to resect this and weren't able to really treat it with radiotherapy, he was thought to be a good candidate for this oral agent. He lived in a nursing home where the nurses were able to give him his medicine, so we knew compliance would not be an issue. And this gentleman was able to stay on this medicine for three months, and it was unbelievable. He had a complete, complete involution of the tumor, and essentially just looked like, it looked like scar there. This drug, like other agents, works very quickly. 
And again, because it's shutting down that incorrect or mutated signal, so onset of action is very, very quick. This patient ultimately stopped therapy for reasons that had nothing to do with his cancer. It was more of his other medical problems that led him to become very, very sick and needed to stop the therapy. But he tolerated this very, very well, and it was really pretty dramatic how the basal cell really went away. You mentioned the muscle cramps, and I've heard also from other people about that. But another thing I've heard about, and I don't know whether you've seen it too, is taste problems. Yes, that's reported and can be limiting for many people. The data is that uh, majority of patients will have this. And for some people, because of that, weight loss is also a problem on this agent too. This can be limiting. Researchers looking at different dose administration courses, they're looking at this to try to minimize some of that, maybe three months on, three months off of the therapy. There's been different schedules looked at to try to minimize this toxicity, which for many people is limiting. I've heard some of my dermatology colleagues saying that their patients want to taste pizza or want to taste their favorite food. So they would rather be able to do that than take this drug. Now, the hedgehog pathway is implicated in an illness known as basal cell nevus syndrome, which is a genetic disorder where people can have hundreds and hundreds of basal cells. And the problem with this is it can affect where the basal cells are. They can subsequently have other comorbidities such as hearing loss or problems where the basal cells are. And many patients have half of their faces resected or have areas of their body that just have basal cells popping out. So for these patients, this drug has been just dramatic for them, but at what cost? Because they really are struggling with their everyday quality of life because they can't taste their food or they're really uncomfortable because of the leg cramps at night. So different dosing schedules are being investigated to try to minimize these side effects. Now, another thing I've heard about in terms of, you know, there are occasional, as you say, it's very, very uncommon to see, you know, metastatic or that advanced disease with basal cell But I've also heard it discussed as sort of a neoadjuvant strategy to use before surgery in patients who have extensive disease where they're going to attempt to remove it surgically, but maybe with the hope of sort of shrinking it down and making less need for surgery. Have you ever used that kind of strategy? We have not at our institution, but as a matter of fact, I was at a conference this weekend where this was presented, and this is being considered particularly in areas where surgical margins are difficult to attain, for example, on the eyelid or around an ear or in areas where it's cosmetically difficult or just strategically difficult to obtain negative margins. They are looking at perhaps using two to three months worth of this agent prior to surgical resection. So yes, that is being investigated.